in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be looking at this chapter that talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17. I'd like to read uh, part of this for us this morning. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before Moses and Elijah talk, uh, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning and we think about these amazing stories that were told from the life of Christ, I pray that you would move our hearts that this wouldn't be just information that we read about and kind of take a few of the facts down in our mind, but we would see really who Jesus is, how awesome he is in his glory, and that that is the same Jesus who lives in us when we know you. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Last summer, my wife and I went on a trip out west, and we uh, went to one of the spots that I've always wanted to see. We went to Bryce and Zion National Park. And I know some of you have been there before and have seen that, but if you have never been there, uh, I would say it was well worth the trip. Uh, Bryce is just an awesome kind of natural phenomena with its standing rock formations that have been eroded over time by wind and water and freezing and thawing. They really are amazing. And then Zion National Park, by contrast, is just this uh, deep valley with these tall mountains on either side. Mountains that have names like the Great White Throne or the Watchers. Or one of the mountains is called Angel's Landing. And that particular mountain, Angel's Landing, was given its name by a Methodist pastor who saw it early on, back in the days when uh, the country was being settled. And he looked at this particular mountain and he saw how it stood and he said, there's no way a person would ever get to the top of that mountain. Only angels could land there. 
Well, the challenge was laid down and one of the park rangers there said there's got to be a way that we could make it uh, such that people could climb to the top of this mountain. And he uh, found a pass and on the back side of the mountain they cut these kind of switchbacks that you can walk on called Walter's Wiggles, named after this park ranger. And you can hike those things, they're quite steep and narrow along the mountain, but you can make it to the top of Angel's Landing. And Gail and I did that last summer and I now have a t-shirt that says, I survived Angel's Landing. Well, the view from the top was, again, just beautiful looking out over the valley. And I think about that when I come to this passage. You know that mountaintop experiences are great. Uh, They are inspiring. It is beautiful to see the scenery below from that vantage point. But you can't live there. You can't live on a mountaintop, really. You need to come back down into the valley to get those things that you need or to experience life and to be uh, with other people. In fact, Billy Graham once said that mountains are for inspiration and valleys are for bearing fruit. And I, I think that's a good statement. Mountains are for inspiration. Valleys are for bearing fruit. And we need both of those in our life. And that's what we see in the life of the disciples as Jesus taught them and equipped them for ministry. In chapters 14 to 17, which we have been working our way through, you can see these mountaintop experiences, the highs and the lows that the disciples went through. For example, in chapter 14, when uh, Jesus had sent them into the boat by night because he wanted to pray, they were out there on the Sea of Galilee and they're rowing with all their might and they're not making any headway because of the storm. And uh, they're fearful that they're going to drown. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. High point, high point, mountaintop experience. Nobody has ever done that. But then he begins to look at the wind and the waves and takes his eyes off Jesus and he sinks. Low point. Jesus picks him up. They get into the boat. Jesus calms the wind and the waves and the disciples worship him. They say, who is this that can calm even the wind and the waves? High point. And then in the next chapter, they hear Jesus teaching and they go, you know, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? Low point. They don't understand it. Then you have, uh, again, they learn what it is that makes a man clean and unclean, that it's the heart that is most important. And so they get it. They understand it. High point. Then in the next part of that chapter, they see this uh, Canaanite woman who has come to them, who is unclean, who is calling out for mercy, and they want to send her away low point. You have Peter's confession in chapter 16, thou art the Christ. Peter, you are the rock. You know, this is the high point. And then right after that comes Jesus explaining how he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, never, Lord. And Peter the rock becomes Peter the stumbling stone. Now, why do I point that out to you? Because I think that's often our experience too. It is the way that we grow as well. We have high points in our life when we get it, we do things right, we're trusting God, and then we have those low points in our life where we blew it, we didn't trust, we were anxious, we tried to do it our way, we sinned. Highs and lows, successes and failures, insight 
and misunderstanding. That's all part of discipleship. And so don't be discouraged by failures, but keep your eyes on Christ and continue to walk with Him. When you have blown it, when you have sinned, just like we talked about at the Lord's table today, we confess that to God. And God, who is merciful, forgives us our sins. He sent His Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us. And what we want to see in our life is progress, where those highs and lows are not quite so often, and where we find ourselves instead growing more consistently because we are walking with Christ and we are trusting Him more and more. Well, let's take a look at what this passage teaches us. Number one, mountaintop experiences give us a greater vision of God. They give us a greater vision of God. After six days, it says that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up on this high mountain by themselves. We aren't absolutely certain which mountain it was. The traditional site has been Mount Tabor, but in uh, this particular century, that's been kind of discounted because at the time of Christ, we discovered there was a fortress on top of Mount Tabor, and it doesn't really fit the area. Most think it's Mount Hermon, which was near Caesarea Philippi, and that Jesus took them up on that mountain. Some also think that another possibility is Mount Mirren, which is kind of halfway between Caesarea Philippi and the Sea of Galilee as they were making their way back. That's really not as important, obviously, as what happened there. They went up on this mountain, and these three disciples were given an incredible privilege. They saw Jesus' glory revealed. I mean, can you imagine how they felt? Can you imagine what that was like? They saw Jesus transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes were as white as light. I mean, they are struggling with even how to describe this. If you put yourself in that situation and you had seen what they saw, you would have been overcome too. Mark tells us that they were terrified. I mean, how do you explain this? They have known no one who is like this. When Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, the Scripture says that his face shone too, but it was a reflected glory. It was the glory of the Lord that was reflected in his face. And Scripture says he wore a veil because that light, that reflected glory was fading when he went away from the presence of the Lord. But when Jesus' face shone, it was an intrinsic glory. It was the glory he had with the Father before the world was made that was just shining through. It was who he really is. We sing at Christmas in the Christmas carol that veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Here was Jesus is God in His glory shining through His humanity. And they were overcome. And then Moses and Elijah appeared with them. Wow! I mean, this is awesome. Moses and Elijah, these are two legends from the Old Testament. I mean, these are the men that we have read about. And can you imagine that, uh, for the disciples as Jewish believers who had read about Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the mighty prophet... Both of those men had also had mountaintop experiences. Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Carmel. And now to see them standing with Jesus would be amazing. So Peter blurts out and he offers to build three shelters for them. 
as though they were all equal. We'll build three tabernacles here, one for each of you. And it is the Father Himself who corrects Peter on this occasion. The Scripture says that a bright cloud came down on them. It is the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord that came down upon that mountain and enveloped them. That glory, the Shekinah glory, is the glory of God Himself. It is mentioned 58 times in Scripture. It is the same glory that filled the tabernacle when that was constructed. It is the pillar of fire that led them by night and the cloud that led them by day. It is the Shekinah glory that filled the temple when it was constructed so that the priest could not enter into the temple because the holiness of the Lord was in that place. And now this glory of God comes down upon the mountain and they hear this voice from heaven that says, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And then he makes his statement, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. It is not Moses and Elijah that they are to follow. As great as Moses and Elijah were, they are not the Son of God, the Messiah. Again, God's statement here about His Son combines two Old Testament passages and ideas from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 that this Son is both the Son of God and He is the suffering servant. But that concept was hard for the disciples to put together. I mean, they could not in their mind see how the Messiah could suffer and die. That wasn't in the plan according to their thoughts about the Messiah. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. That is what the Father said. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that as New Testament believers? How do we listen to Jesus when He is not physically here with us? Well, we do that by paying attention to His Word. Peter would never forget what he saw that day on the mountain. And in fact, he wrote about it in Second Peter chapter 1, the last book that he would write. And he said this. He said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. So He's writing about this event, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw His glory. We were eyewitnesses of it. We heard the voice from heaven. Amazing. But that's an experience that you and I can't have. That's not a repeatable experience that we have. But what Peter says here goes beyond that and he says as great as that was we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts in other words what he was saying here was as great as that mountaintop experience was we have something even more important for our spiritual life. 
We have the Word of God. As great as that experience was for them, as great as our mountaintop experiences may be in our life, we have something even more significant to pay attention to. And that is the living and active Word of God. And what that does is that makes it accessible to everyone. Because all of us have the opportunity to read and study the Scriptures and to hear these stories about Jesus. That's a pretty amazing statement. Peter doesn't discount what he saw on that mountain. But he is saying to you and me that the Word of God is even more significant than those kind of high points. Now we need mountaintop experiences. I believe that they are good for our soul. They enlarge our vision of God. They help us to grow in our understanding of who He is. And that's why things like uh, going to camp or a conference or a retreat or a prayer retreat, when you get away and you listen to God, that's why all of those are so significant in our life. We've had students in our ministry through the years who have said, you know, that a turning point for me was the national conference. Or it was at camp where I made that commitment to Christ. Or those of you as adults can talk about whether it was Women of Faith or a Promise Keepers event or another kind of retreat or gathering. God may have used that in a very powerful way in your life. We need those. They encourage us in our faith. But on a daily basis, we need to be in the Word of God. And secondly, to be effective in serving God, we need to continually walk with Jesus. Let's take a look at verses 14 and following. It says, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came down from the mountain, they were met by a man whose son suffered from seizures and demonic possession. And the man had asked the nine disciples who had stayed below to heal him, and they could not do it. Why was that? I mean, they had been given authority from Jesus. They had been able to do this before on a previous mission trip where they were sent out. Why could they not do it at this point? In verse 17, we hear Jesus' disappointment with our world. It is unbelieving and perverse. Our world doesn't want to believe in Jesus. It doesn't want to change. It doesn't want to repent of its sin, apart from the grace of God. And we hear Jesus even longing to return to His heavenly home. How long shall I be with you? How long will I have to put up with this? He longs to return to the glory He had with the Father before the world began. 
And so he says, simply bring the boy here. He rebukes the demon, and the boy is healed. And the disciples in private again ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said the answer is because you have so little faith. It may be better to translate that their faith was lacking. They were lacking in faith. The problem wasn't the quantity of their faith. What Jesus teaches us is that even a little faith can move mountains. And that statement about you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be done, that's a proverbial statement about overcoming obstacles. God isn't saying that if you believe, He will put Pike's Peak in your backyard, you know. (laughs) You may like that, they may be pretty awesome, but God's not interested in doing that for our pleasure. This is a statement about overcoming obstacles. That if you have faith in your life, God can do amazing, extraordinary, even the impossible things in your life. He can provide for you. He can help you through the trials you are facing. He can overcome those obstacles that are in your way. He can deliver you and set you free. But their faith was still lacking. Genuine faith has three elements to it. It has content, a right understanding of who God is. That's why we say faith is only as good as its object. People believe in a lot of things. But only God can save you. Assent to that content. Agreement with it. Not only do you know some facts in your head, but you agree to that in your heart. And then thirdly, you trust in Him. You have this confident belief that what God has promised, He will do. That's what made Abraham's faith so great. That God believed that what God... I mean, Abraham believed that what God had said about him having a son was going to happen even in his old age. In Romans 4:20 20 through 22 the scripture says that he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed that God could do what he had said. That's why faith has been defined as taking God at His word. Well, the greatest area where we see this in is in prayer. But even there, prayer is not automatic. We must leave the results in God's hands. Michael Wilkins shared how, as a pastor in a church, uh, they... Uh, would call people would call upon the elders to pray for them. We do that here too. If you have a need and you would like the elders to pray for you, we've done that after a service. We've done that at special times where we've come and we pray for people. And they practice that in their church. And they had two situations come up in a close period of time. One of them involved an elder's wife who was ill and who the doctors had told she didn't have long to live. The elders came They placed their hands on her. They prayed for God's mercy. And she was healed. Amazingly, she was healed. She still had effects from her illness that she had to deal with, but she was restored to life and lived several more years. It was a miracle that profoundly affected the church. But on the other side, there was another individual who also had a bedridden wife. 
They came, they did the same thing. They placed their hands upon her, they prayed for her, but this woman was not healed. In fact, she got worse. And Michael Wilkins, you know, asked the question, I mean, did we do something wrong there? Did we have more faith in the first incident than in the second? No, we did everything the same. We believed God, we trusted Him, but we leave the outcome in His hands. And in the second situation, it would be several years later that that woman declared that it was the best thing in her life to not be healed in the way that she had desired because she learned to rely upon God in the middle of her suffering. And it eventually led her to develop a ministry to others in like circumstances. We don't know what God's will may be. That's why when we come... We ask boldly for what we desire, but we pray humbly. And we say, not my will, but yours be done. Thirdly, discipleship is a process. There will be high points and low points. There will be successes and failures. There will be insights and misunderstandings in our spiritual journey. Look at verses 24 excuse me, verses uh, 22 and following. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and then they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. I'm going to pause there. This is the second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, and the disciples are still failing to grasp exactly what Jesus is saying. They understand part of it that Jesus is literally saying he's going to go to Jerusalem and die and their hearts are filled with grief, but they don't understand this part about being raised to life. They don't get it yet. They don't have this hope of the resurrection in their heart. It would be clear to them in the days ahead, but for now they simply needed to trust Jesus. You know, discipleship is like that. That's what we need to do too. I mean, there are things that I don't understand and I still have questions about when I study the Scripture. I mean, I have questions about how the world was made and I wonder if we're going to be able to watch the video of that, you know, when we get to heaven. And I'd like to see exactly how God did all of that when the angels were watching and they were ooing and aahing as God put the sun and the moon and the stars in place and named all of them. I mean, it's amazing. I'd like to know about those giants that were in Genesis. Exactly what was that? We have thoughts about that, but we don't know for sure who the giants were. And what about those dinosaurs? Where exactly did they fit into this story? And there are questions that we have about the end of life. Questions about the new heaven and new earth and all that we're going to be doing in that new earth. But you know, I've learned that I don't need to know everything that I can trust God for those things and I can trust Him in the valleys of my life and I can thank God for the mountaintop experiences that have been so encouraging. I am grateful for His grace every day. And there will continue to be in our life those kinds of highs and lows. Verses 24 to 28 as we finish the chapter are another example of Peter's misunderstanding and then growth as a disciple. 
After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and they asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? The temple tax was required of every male between the ages of 20 and 50 years of age. Now, just a little side note. Sometimes people have asked about retirement and they say, you know, I don't see retirement in the scripture. But I kind of wonder about that when you have this requirement that those that are in those working years between 20 and 50 were to pay the temple tax and after that you did not need to. I just kind of wonder if that's an area to, to look at about that question. But here they are. They were required to pay this half shekel or two drachma tax. And Peter answers, you know, the question, well, of course, uh, yes, Jesus pays the tax. It's later, Jesus pulls him aside, and Peter, let me ask you a question. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak, and he said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Well, then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. You see, Jesus was instructing him about something here in terms of his own relationship with the Father. Do kings collect taxes from their sons? No. Neither does the Father collect a tax from his sons. Jesus is God's Son. And we, as his disciples, are also God's sons. And in the future, they would no longer pay the temple tax because the temple would pass away. It would be destroyed in A.D. 70, not to be rebuilt at that time. But to not give offense, Peter, I'd like you to go fishing today. I'd like you to take a hook and line and I want you to cast it into the sea. And there will be one fish, and take that first fish you catch, and in its mouth is going to be a coin. And Jesus providentially provided a four drachma coin to pay the tax for both of them. Amazing. What did Peter learn that day? He learned that Jesus is God's son. He learned that we are his sons and daughters. And he learned that God provides for his children. You know, mountains, again, are for inspiration and valleys are for bearing fruit. We need both in our life. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you took a half day or a day to be with the Lord? Have you done that as a practice, if this can be so good, to just simply say, you know what, I'm going to block out the morning just to spend time with Jesus today. Or I'm going to take the day and I'm going to go to a quiet place and I'm going to open the scriptures and read and I'm going to pray and listen to God. We need those days in our life. Life is so busy and full. And then on the other side, how do we overcome our failures when we stumble and fall? Well, we need to listen to Jesus. That's his word. We need to keep our faith personal and growing. Don't rest on the past, but keep walking with God in the present. We need to know our weaknesses and where the enemy attacks us and where we are vulnerable and guard our hearts. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and follow him. Let's pray. 
Father, it is humbling to look at ourselves and to see us as you see us, with all of our faults and our sin. But what is also amazing, Lord, is that you knew all of that even before you died for us. And you died to make us holy in your sight, that one day we would stand in your presence, fully sanctified. And Jesus, we look forward to that day. And in this life, would you help us to grow toward that, to be obedient, faithful, to admit it when we have sinned and wrong and to confess that, and to get up and to walk with you again. May our faith increase and grow through the years, and may our love for you deepen. We ask it in your name. Amen.